Hello and welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletics. Today on the show, Mark Schindler is back in the building. Look at that beautiful new apartment in Atlanta, Georgia, where Mark Schindler is now located. Mark, what's going on, buddy? Yeah, I feel like I'm uh, I'm putting on for for the OG, um, who not not that I replaced, not that I could ever replace our man Penny, but uh, I feel like you know having somebody step up in the South who is not actually a Southerner. Um, I could it's, it, it's I'm paying homage to him. That's the entire reason I moved. Actually, well, Penny is from Boston, but nonetheless, we I know he's from Boston, but didn't he? Did, I thought he was living in the South when you guys. Yeah, he's 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 Boston through and through. I texted Penny oh. last night. I'm trying to get him to do some content where he slides down the slide that the cop fell down. <laughs> have you seen that video yet? Yes, of course. I have been slightly under a rock the last week. Forgive me, but I have seen that. Also, <laughs> forgive me, Penny, for being completely. I don't know why I thought that he lived in the south for a minute but okay continue yeah th- we're, this is like peer pressure i need everybody to tweet at penny uh because i think his twitter account is still live please yeah, tweet at him slide down the cop right slide, uh in boston because I-, I don't understand how that cop got going at like velocity that allows you to leave the atmosphere to where his like head ended up on top of the slide at one point it is the greatest uh anomaly maybe in the history of physics to me so i need to understand more about it and the only way for that to happen is for matt penny to be his six foot eight self sliding down that slide getting full velocity i think we need somebody with that kind of frame to do it in order to in order to find out, is this possible? That's where I'm at on this. I just tweeted at Penny. So people yeah, go go jump on that. Go retweet that. Put pressure on him. Yeah. Yeah. We got we got to do hashtag peer pressure to Penny. Uh okay. Today we are gonna talk about James Harden and trying to understand is there an actual trade market for James Harden? And is there any deal on the market that makes any sort of sense for Philadelphia? My current inclination is no, but I'm willing to be open and try and understand some potential outcomes here that might make sense across the board, given it that it seems like James Harden does not want to play with Philadelphia 76ers next season. Then we're going to talk about a trio of college basketball commitments. We're going to talk about Ade Mara going to UCLA. We're going to talk about Svonimir Visich going to Kentucky. And then we're going to talk about Johnny Furphy going to Kansas. Three blue blood programs recruiting international players in a way that I find to be incredibly interesting uh, moving forward here. Finally, uh, we're going to talk about PJ Washington and his free agency. Mark wanted to dive deep into PJ because he is a very big fan of PJ's uh, stylings on the court. And then finally, our last topic is We have like a group of four players. It might just be like three that Mark really wants to talk about at the end. I want to talk about Don Barlow. It was a good opportunity to do that. Mark wants to talk about a couple other guys. Uh, So let's, let's just plan on doing that near the end of the show. Cool. Okay. Mark, how, how, how did moving in go? Let's start there. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I have, uh, it's been a process. I'm still not fully moved. <laughs> you can see, geez, my dog is such a goon. Um, you can, he, I'm, he dropped the ball on my lap. Uh, you can see if I just shift my camera, that's how moving in is going so far. Yeah. Um, good work. I did a really great job planning out when all my furniture and stuff is supposed to get here. In other words, it's not here yet. Um, so I've been like slowly assembling my apartment. I have two chairs, I have a desk and I have a bed. 
and then I have a TV and, uh, and yeah, we're kind of going from there. So, um, it's been good, man. Like I, uh, I started a new job, uh, the day before I moved in. So that has been, uh, that has been an adventure. It's been great being there. Um, it's the closest that I've been to having a full-time job in sports, which I think that's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, I'm just excited to be back, to be back in the swing of things. Um, we're, we have a lot of great stuff to catch up on, man. I'm excited. I'm excited to dive into this. Okay. Let's start with James Harden. From the moment that James Harden asked, you know, pseudo asked, I guess, like opted in with the understanding of potentially being traded, whatever his decision was there. It's been very difficult for me to understand where he ends up. Mm-hmm. Truly, just like I, I'm not totally sure where actually can make sense for both parties to come to a deal. The location that makes sense in theory for James Harden is the Clippers. The problem is the Clippers have Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. They're probably not going to move both of those guys or either of those guys. And then beyond them, they don't really seem to have any assets that actually make sense for the Philadelphia 76ers. Terrence Mann would be a nice acquisition. There are pick assets. There are other things that they could go get. But those don't actually tick boxes, in my opinion, for the Philadelphia 76ers next season, trying to win a championship with Joel Embiid, the MVP of the league, as their best player and centerpiece. Do you understand – let's start with this before we move forward. Do you understand why the Clippers would want James Harden? Let, let's just go base level here, and then we'll move out. Yeah, I think um, – not to go too, too long, but I think my thing with this is it's – I think some people have gone a little bit too far in degrading what the Clippers roster is, but I do think it's kind of a midpoint of you know two years ago – it felt like everybody's talking about oh, that they have almost too many guys because they have so much versatility and all these multi-positional players. And I think part of the issue is some of those guys have aged out. Some of them haven't developed the way that you'd think. Some of them have regressed a little bit. And now I think they're in an awkward spot of like they have too many guys who do the same thing without really giving them a new look. So to me, if you can cobble some of that together into James Harden, does it answer the injury questions you have? Definitely not. Um does it necessarily fix everything for you? I don't think so, but I think it gives you like you have somebody who can really create in the half court, which granted Paul George and Kawhi can of course do that. But I think when you're talking about somebody who can create in the half court for themselves and others at not just like a, a good level at a great level borderline, you know, depending on the day, I think yeah. that makes a ton of sense. But I think when you're talking about money and what it might actually, what the Sixers actually want, that's where it gets a little bit dicier. I just don't totally that, – that's where I'm struggling, just like generally trying to find a deal that the Sixers could potentially want. And, and we'll talk about you know maybe a couple of ideas that Can I – Can I give a take on that? Yes, but hold on. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yes. I definitely want your take. It's just like I want to kind of go in a, in a flow here a little bit. Because uh, the Clippers are the spot that it seems like everyone wants to end up like James Harden wants to end up there. And I think that's the place we have to start on some level. Is, is there a deal that you think one-on-one with the Clippers 
that could make sense because the best deal for my eyes that they could offer is Norman Powell, probably, I guess, Robert Covington, maybe uh, probably Robert Covington. But no, you, you probably want Powell, Terrence Mann, Kobe Brown, and like, you know, you know, really probably like that's that's it. Maybe a pick in the future, right? Because they can move one of their picks. I think twenty twenty eight. Does that does that do anything for you? If you are the Philadelphia seventy sixers, I'm hanging up the phone. To be honest, like that. If you're to me, that's like, and I know some people will look at me like, well, maybe you can make a counter move off of that. I just think like if you're doing that, then we're well, that becomes about- a three team deal then. Well, yeah, yeah. And that's like yeah, but exactly. But my, I mean, I, I mean, like you know, later in the year after their restrictions are up, I think my thing is I look at that. I'm on like, all right, if we're if we're making that deal, then we may as well just trade Joel at this point because maybe that sounds like too much, but I think based on all the signalings we've gotten and how Joel has, and I'm, I'm not saying Joel's right or wrong, but just based on anything that he said, and I think you know maybe a little too much got made out of what he said, but at the same point. Joel knows what he's doing. You know, he's he's smart. He knows what he's doing in the media. Um, and I just think that's such a downgrade with what the – not that they couldn't be successful with a group that's maybe a little bit deeper with less of the top-end talent and, you know, Max takes a step. But I think when you're talking about what the actual ceilings with that group, I mean, that, that does nothing for me. So, yeah, that, that's kind of where I struggle with this too. Let's just like ask the question here. Is there a chance that like a Norman Powell, Tyrese Maxey, Terrence Mann, Tobias Harris, uh, Joel Embiid closing lineup is in any way better than what Philly had this year? Uh, probably not. I, I don't think so either. I, I think it'd be very unlikely. You can throw in D'Anthony Melton, obviously, into that mix, depending on the matchups. You can throw in. Papev, if you think he's going to be valuable for them this year, you know, PJ Tucker could go back in this deal and you could, you know, do an expiring. You could do like the flip of PJ Tucker for uh, Robert Covington if you wanted to try and uh, get off of some money quicker with PJ Tucker. You get the expiring deal of Covington, you make the Clippers take on the extra year of Tucker. That's at least like something of a value add to me. But the problem is exactly what you said. I think that deal ends up resulting in Joel Embiid being like, what are we doing here? And probably asking out at a certain point, because that's what stars do at the end of the day. If they can't compete for a title and Joel Embiid is getting very close to being 30 years old and he just won MVP, he should want to win a title coming up here. And the 76ers, if they have all of these players and everything like that, they have to figure out a way to make it work, I think. And you could maybe do this deal for Harden. You could do Terrence Mann and Norm Powell and Kobe Brown in the first or whatever. And then you could try and move Tyrese Maxey maybe to go get a different star. I think like that could be on the table somehow. You'd probably do it all in like a you know three or four team swap if you were trying to really make that happen. But I, I don't know if that's a good idea. Like again, Tyrese Maxey's really good at basketball. He's probably going to be like a top 60 player in the league this year. Trading him does not make you better. Trading him gives you another hole to plug. So I'm struggling to find the Clippers deal that makes sense. 
there's probably some weird three-team construction out there where you could find a star. And that, I think, is what I'm interested in exploring. Trying to find a way to get a star to Philadelphia. The problem is I can't find that star right now. Are you and I in agreement that the Philadelphia 76ers should go into this season with James Harden on the roster unless they are able to find a commensurate star that is somewhat close to James Harden's value in a trade? Uh, I mean, I think ideally you start the season with that not being the problem. Um, but at the same point, I just don't think that you can – If like, again, like I think if you just make kind of a, a – a, a putt instead of actually trying to go for a drive here, then I just question what that ends up looking like long-term. So I think you, you kind of have to, in my opinion. Yeah. I, I think you have to, too. You really, I think, run the risk of Joel Embiid saying, I want out. If you end up with a team of like, you know, all due respect to Terrence Mann, a guy that I've loved pre-draft that I've loved every moment that he's been in the league. Terrence Mann, you can't expect him to be the centerpiece of a James Harden deal when you are trying to compete for a title immediately. And uh, respectfully, too, like I really like Terrence Mann. I think he's a good player. I think that there were times that he could have been better utilized last year after seeing how well he played the year before. At the same time, we got to recognize he's he's going to turn 28 this year. Like yeah. This is not a dude on a rookie scale deal. And that's not to say that he can't get better or won't get better. I think he has a real upside to become like a real solid starter. But that's kind of the point. Like, I think he's been talked about, and and this is, again, not Menashe, but like he's been talked about like he can be the centerpiece of this kind of deal. And I just don't see that, to be honest. I think that's a little Mm -hmm. bit um, ridiculous. Um, Terrence Mann. Well, like Terrence Mann is a worse asset than Jaime Hawkes right now. You get Jaime Jaquez for four years on a rookie scale deal. You get Terrence Mann for two years at twenty-two million. Like I'm low enough on Jaime. I don't think Jaime is going to be as good as Terrence is right now. So I, pro- I think he will be at his peak. He won't be for two years, probably. Well, yeah, but I think, but I, like, I, I think for to me, for uh, if I'm a championship, a team that wants to be a contender, I think Terrence means a lot more to me than Jaime Jaquez. Yeah, I agree. I'm just saying, like, in comparison to the other big trade that's out there, the Damian yeah, Lillard trade, no, that's fair. where people are, you know, complaining about Jaime Jaquez being the centerpiece. Well, Jaime Jaquez is, to me at least, a better trade asset than Terrence Mann is. Terrence Mann is a better player than Jaime Jaquez. It's just that as an asset where you get four years of a rookie-scale deal for Jaime Jaquez, that is a more valuable player to me. So I want to go through this. And I want to try and find a way, or maybe let's do this. Try and find a star that could realistically, theoretically be on the market in a potential James Harden trade construction that gets Philadelphia the player it needs and gets the Clippers James Harden and find something. So just running through teams here, right? The Atlanta Hawks just signed DeJounte Murray to an extension. He is not tradable. They're not going to move Trey Young in a construction like this. Doesn't really, none of of the Hawks guys make sense, right? Mm -hmm. Correct. The the Boston Celtics, 
Jalen Brown just signed an extension, not tradable. Jason Tatum, you know, not moving Jason Tatum in a James Harden trade construction. The Celtics do not make sense. I think the Celtics, if they're going for any point guard, should be trying in some way, shape, or form to get involved in the Damian Lillard sweepstakes. I'm skeptical that they will even do that, though, given the price tag involved in that. Right? Yeah. Okay. Uh, the Brooklyn Nets, I think, uh, would theoretically be like a somewhat interesting trade partner here. The problem is that the trade partner uh, is the Brooklyn Nets, who already had James Harden and already had to move him. Uh, I, I would substantially doubt that they want to get back in that business. Uh, they are going to be out here. The Charlotte Hornets, uh, they're rebuilding. They have no need to get involved in the James Harden sweepstakes. They probably don't want the assets that the Clippers can give. I don't really see a construction there that makes sense. I do at least like think that there is something interesting about Gordon Hayward involved in this going back to Philly, but I don't think you can really expect Gordon Hayward health uh, in any way, shape or form. And I don't think he can be the main piece uh, that you're expecting to win now with in such Mm -hmm. a deal. Right. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Okay. Now we're into one that I actually find interesting. Is there a way to do like a DeMar DeRozan to Philly, some assets to Chicago, James Harden to LA deal? Hmm. I don't. That's tough. Um, so I'm just trying. I mean, I think that that's better than than what the LA deal is for sure. Like Demar is a fantastic player, um, does a lot of really good things that I think would be good for the Sixers. But at the same time, uh, I mean, I think it's it's at least palatable, which is it's not it's not great. I would like to see what else there is for sure. So. We're going to go through this. I think Damar is the name that makes the most sense personally. Um, But the problem here is that I think Chicago has like a warped view of its roster and probably would be interested in continuing to have Damar DeRozan on the team. The interesting thing to me is like, is there a chance that Chicago could just want James Harden? and see him as a better fit on an expiring contract for this roster than DeMar DeRozan. I don't think like, that's is crazy. There, um, yeah, like, is, is there a chance that they go, hey, we think, like, a core with James Harden, Zach Levine, Pat Williams, Nikola Vucevic, Alex Caruso, you know, Kobe White makes more sense than a Levine, DeRozan, Vucevic, Patrick Williams core does for this upcoming season? I think part of what could be interesting in that, because like, and and this is respectfully, like I'm not like, I don't think that they're, that's like a contending team or whatever, but I think it's a team. Like if things hit right, like, okay, Pat takes another step and Vooch shoots well from three again for a whole season. Like, okay, maybe there's some stuff there. Um, But because like, all right, you're, you're kind of forcing Zach to play a little bit more off the ball, which I think both of us would say is where like not that he's a bad yeah. on ball player, but I think when he is able to be a player who's really playing in the flow of an offense, hell yeah. I think my biggest question would just be what is the confidence level in James with Vooch? Because that is not a kind of player that he's ever really succeeded with. Like 
honestly, the closest big he's probably played with to Vooch is Joel. And those are completely different players. Like in terms of just somebody who is much more of like a pop than a role guy and Vooch is way more pop. And I think like you're doing a lot more stuff with him as a handoff hub. And, um, and that's just, again, that is very much not James's game. Um, But again, like, okay, well, let's say, well, I can't even trade Vooch for however long. Um, So that automatically makes it interesting, but yeah, I mean, like it's not, with how the Bulls have operated, I don't think that that's insane. So I think that it's interesting insofar as if they do care about getting Pat Williams more touches and seeing what he is before committing to a larger extension with him, getting rid of DeMar and allowing Pat Williams to be in spots that are better for him, because he's a guy that I think can be a real mid-range shot creator, a guy you can throw the ball to, you know, high post, mid post, you know, on the wing, everything like that, and let him create shots that way. Exploring that, I think, is actually the biggest question in understanding what his untapped upside and untapped potential is. So I'm intrigued by that idea, at least, right? Yeah, no, I, don't, I think that there is interest in that. Because, I, again, like part of the issue for this team is ball movement. Like, I'm not even part of like that is the biggest issue with this Bulls team has been ball movement. It's not that they don't have offensive players. Again, like part of that has been a lack of floor spacing, yeah. but I think a lot more of it is just in general the shooting on the team. Because even like if you go back to, and we're going ways back, but if you go back to when Thad Young was on this team and they played through him, like this team had great ball movement. They didn't have the talent to really be a super successful offense, but like you had a lot of the same pieces doing some of this stuff before. Tamar and, and, and Vooch came in. So it's like, it, I don't know. Like it's, it's very much at a point where it's like, if you can have somebody who is um, not that, I mean, Tamar has technically been the primary initiator on the team, but I think if you have somebody who is making it much less my turn, your turn and more just, Hey, it's my turn. And we're figuring it out off of that. Obviously that's a very simplified way of looking at it. But like, I think that, I mean, maybe there's something there. Um, that at least makes me say, like, hey, maybe the Bulls are a playoff team. Probably, I mean, almost definitely not a home team, home court. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think that getting somebody who is, like, a legitimately very good playmaker and, and passer that the team hasn't had in prior years would be really big for them. Does DeMar in any way make sense for Philadelphia? I think yes and no. Um, I think my question would just be, how much faith do you have in Tyrese Maxey taking more steps as, yeah. a, as a playmaker? Because to me, he is obviously different from Zach Levine, but I think part of what makes him so successful is being that guy who can attack second side, being that guy who can really operate um, you know, with his athleticism and, and, and attacking off the catch. And I think if you are bringing in DeMar, somebody who very much succeeds in the same way, in, but in, well, in that same – he operates in a very different way, obviously, like a lot more slowed down in his game. But like a lot of what he does is um, having the ability to operate and, and attack off stuff. Um, so are you confident in Joel taking a step as a passer? Are you confident in Tyrese taking a much larger step as as an on-ball playmaker? And I think that's asking a lot. Um, not, and to be fair, like, Kamar does really good things with the ball in his hand. But yeah. it's just – it's different. The only thing that worries me there is the idea of 
Damar and Joel loving that like mid post area uh, and loving to like, it'd be the most hideous offense in the league, like by far, like it'd be even uglier than like with Harden being there. And I think that Philly, Philly fans would not love that, but I think that it's the most palatable option because Damar is still really good at basketball. And if you are just, you're just like exchanging and expiring for an expiring, I think you could make sense to argue that the Bulls, you know, this helps them honestly maybe like evaluate their players and rebuild while also contending at a better level. And maybe DeMar is happier to go and play in like a contending situation for a year as opposed to the Bulls. That at least like I I can come up, I can come up with a world in my mind where that makes some sense for both sides, but it's, it's, it's hard for me to envision Chicago being willing to do that as well. Um, I, I don't know. I, I'm I'm intrigued by it, but Chicago seems to be in such a weird spot that it's it's difficult for me to imagine. Um, just because I, I just they don't do they don't do logical things. That it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers, the Dallas Mavericks, the Denver Nuggets. None of those three teams really make sense in a hardened construction, in my opinion. Um, the Cavs in Dallas both have just like crazy elite point guards, and they have two of them. Uh, the Nuggets are just not going to be involved in a hardened deal, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, the Pistons, look, I mean, the Pistons do weird things. Uh, they have Cade Cunningham and Jade Nivey, though, so I can't imagine the Pistons wanting to do this weird thing specifically, right? Yeah, no, definitely not. They also have Monte Morris. They probably want to get a Sar Thompson some reps. They probably want to get Marcus Sasser some reps. I don't think they're in the market for a point guard. Uh, I don't see Golden State being involved in a James Harden deal, although the Chris Paul contract is somewhat intriguing here, in my opinion. And I do, this is where I wonder if we could get a bit creative. Is there a world? where the Golden State Warriors would like turning Chris Paul's contract into Terrence Mann, you know, maybe not Norm Powell, but like Terrence Mann. Uh, like Nick trying to like think of, yeah, like maybe Nick Batum in like a first. Like, is that plausible? Uh I think it was plausible, but like, and again, maybe I'm reading too much into stuff, but it feels like they seem pretty dead set on CP to an extent or not. Maybe dead set is the wrong way to put it, but it feels like they've moved forward with it. Like this is our things, what we're doing. Um, could be wrong on that, but I mean, I think that it's something to think about for sure. Uh, I don't know. What's your read on that? Does Chris Paul tick the boxes for the 76ers? Could you do like Chris Paul and Norm Powell to the 76ers? Uh, you send back Harden and Tucker to the Clippers, and then the Clippers send like Terrence Mann, probably would have to be like Marcus Morris, maybe to the warriors and then like kobe brown in a first or something to the warriors like is that is that something that makes sense sort of like 
it's it's not it's not far off, I don't think. But again, do you think for the 76ers, Chris Paul and Norm Powell makes them a better team than James Harden did last year? Or makes no. them like an equal team in some no, way? No, I don't think so. Is that a better idea than DeMar DeRozan? Probably not. Just by virtue of Chris being another year older, the injury factor, um, I'd be... And especially too, it's like even less about that and more just like how, okay, we already asked a lot of Joel defensively last year and now we want him to cover for Tyrese and CP. Like that is, that's a lot. Um, so I don't know, that that would be interesting um, to see how that looks. The, the interesting thing for me is that I think the Warriors would look higher. Um, I think they would like to maybe use the Chris Paul deal over the next 18 months to be able to turn or 12 months, maybe to be able to turn that not into multiple smaller contracts, but more likely multiple bigger contracts or not multiple bigger contracts, like a single player in that salary slot, much in the same way they did with like D'Angelo Russell, turning that into Andrew Wiggins uh, and using the Russell contract essentially as like a salary slot for half a year. I, I would bet that's more the route they go down. That that makes a little bit more sense to me. But there's a world where you can envision that, I think. I'm basically trying to come up with worlds that you can come up with, basically. And it's not the easiest thing in the world. The Houston Rockets, I, I just don't see it with them signing Fred Van Vliet. I'm sorry. Like, I, I would be surprised if they really go down this road. I do not see the Indiana Pacers going down the road of a Harden situation in any way. Um, I don't see the Pacers having like the guy that makes sense for the 76ers. Uh, the Lakers, I guess you could theoretically maybe try to come up with something, but I don't think they have the guy that the 76ers are looking for uh, outside of AD and LeBron. And I don't see that happening anytime soon. Uh, the Grizzlies, I don't see them really trying to get involved here. Do you? No, I don't think it really makes a lot of sense for them to be honest with just with where they're at and, Nah, I don't see it. The Heat, I don't think they have the guy that the Sixers should want. Uh, They could obviously look to Harden as like a backup option if they don't get Lillard. But I don't think they have the guy that like makes sense for Philly to acquire. The the question is, if you're, I guess, Miami, do you care more about Tyler Hero uh, or getting James Harden for a year? Probably a hero just because I would rather have hero. Yeah. No, yeah. I'm just thinking through my head, but yeah, no, I'd probably go hero. Yeah. I think I'd rather have hero than Harden on an expiring the bucks. It seems like they're going in like a different direction just in terms of finding uh, a different way to play. Like some of the moves they've made over the course of the last couple of years, are non-Budenholzer moves, and obviously Mike Budenholzer is not going to be there. Like, you look, they draft Marjan Beauchamp, they draft Andre Jackson, right? These are non-shooters where they've played a scheme that almost expressly only values shooters, mm-hmm. right? So could, could they, like, look down the road of a James Harden acquisition? I, I think no. I think they would try and get involved in Lillard, uh, and I have sent you a monstrosity 
that yeah, I don't want to think about that ever, <laughs> ever again in my life. Yeah. Th- that like I can try and come up with in my head that makes sense, but I, I don't see it. I, I don't see the Bucks getting involved in a James Harden deal. Um, I, I don't think they would move Drew Holiday. I, I think Drew Holiday is a guy that the Sixers could want. I don't think that the Bucks would move Drew Holiday in a James Harden construction. I think they'd consider it for Lillard. I don't think they would do it for Harden. Um, the Timberwolves, again, I think that you can come up with like an interesting case, like for Mike Conley and something else, but I don't think they would do that. I think the Timberwolves probably want to just see what uh, James Hart or uh, see what Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert can come up with in terms of synergy and then let Anthony Edwards cook. Because if you go get James Harden, you're taking the ball out of Anthony Edwards hands. And I think they want to explore that a little bit more. Right. No, I agree with that. Okay. Um, the New Orleans Pelicans are a team that a couple of people in the comments have brought up. Seasons and Sloan just asked about the Pelicans. I, The idea of CJ McCollum in something like this is intriguing. I think the idea of CJ McCollum for three years is probably something that the Pelicans wouldn't mind getting off of that contract. And I think that the Sixers might not want that contract, just given that they might have to rebuild uh, pretty quickly. I also don't love the CJ and Tyrese Maxey fit. Someone brought up, uh, I think McCollum and Dyson Daniels could make sense. Maybe. Um, I think it's a good idea. I think like it's an idea in theory, but why would we want, uh, why would we want James Harden in New Orleans? I wouldn't personally really want James Harden in New Orleans. Um, like, I just think in terms of, like, yes, I think that this team is very much on the brink of they have, not that they saying they have to make a move is too much, um, but I think with where they're at roster-wise, like, I really think that they, it's not, it's not Dame and it's not, you know, the quote unquote guy right now, but I think that they are the team to really go for the next guy potentially if things really hit right this year. And so to me, I would not be making the hard move because I do think he would make yeah. them meaningfully better. But when you consider again, like, like we just talked about, it's not an expiring, how likely is that he's going to resign in New Orleans when everything has been about wanting to go back to LA. So um, no, I, I would be very against that for them. I would also be somewhat against it for them. I think they should be waiting to cash in on something else. I think their opportunity cost is using some of their assets on something else um, as opposed to this move. And I think it just doesn't really make sense to do that. Uh, The Knicks, I think the Knicks are waiting. I, I think the Knicks, like the Knicks are much more likely to me to try and get Embiid after this whole thing falls apart than to try and get James Harden now. Right. They have Jalen Brunson. Like, you don't need to do that. Uh, The Oklahoma City Thunder, I think there's no chance they would go down that road with Shea and Josh and all those guys. Um, The Orlando Magic, I mean, maybe. Maybe, right? There's some, uh, like, I kind of see that with them. Um, Like, I get get the vision. I don't think that they have any interest in that is where I would be at. And I don't think they should either. Like, they have – so much to be excited about with their young group. And it feels like they're just kind of all in on that. And I also, I'll, I'll put out a take, you know me, I don't do takes. I think that this team 
They're, I believe they're slated by Vegas for 36 and a half. Is there, is there over under? I'm taking the over on wins for them next year. Um, I don't think that that is egregious or all that bullish, honestly. Like they won 34 last year. They played at about a 500 pace after, after Christmas. Um, and, or after January 1st, not after Christmas, because they lost two games after Christmas. But um, I mean, right after Christmas. But point being, like, I think they have like so many guys that they're interested in figuring out as ball handlers that I don't really think it makes all that much sense, even if I get the idea of, you know, taking them up a level next year. Markel Fultz, Gary Harris, Cole Anthony for James Harden. I'm just trading Joel Embiid. I think the Fultz back in Philly thing is potentially the funniest outcome. That possible. Would be There's no way that it would happen. But also, like, but could Markel's agent would like do bad not things. Not be pleased. Yeah. Yeah, pleased. <laughs> so. um, yeah look, if, if they look, they just drafted Anthony Black. They still have Jalen Suggs on the roster. If they would want to have like an expiring point guard with the way that Markel played last year. I think they should continue to go down the Markel road. I don't really think they should try and like expedite this in any way. If there is a world where Jeff Weltman in some way, shape or form is in like job security trouble, maybe you could say that like they try to get James Harden and try and get to like 43 wins this year instead of, you know, 38 or so and make the playoffs and do things that way. I I don't really love it personally, but a team that I can't rule out necessarily given that uh, the Phoenix suns, there's just no way that they can make this work. Uh, the Portland trailblazers. I mean, there's probably a Damian Lillard construction out there, but I, I don't, I, I've yet to find the Damian Lillard to Philly construction that works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, and I've, I've really tried to figure it out. Yeah. And obviously like, where oh well, yeah, because I mean it wouldn't just be it wouldn't be hard and back, obviously, but like that, yeah, it's I, I'm with you. I don't that that the monstrosity you sent me feels like the closest to it. And I even then you can like pick at it and, and find reasons yeah. for it to not happen. Uh the Kings have De'Aaron Fox. There's no way that they're doing that. Uh and they don't have another star outside of Monas Bonus. Monas Bonus is the center. He does not fit with Joel Embiid. Uh, the Toronto Raptors are realistically the last team that I think are worth talking about here. Is there any way that they could decide a James Harden, Pascal Siakam, Jakob Pertle, like Scotty Barnes core with Harden works? Uh, like moving Ananobi and Gary Trent and trying to build around Harden, Siakam, Barnes. And I, I know it's not as simple as just, uh, well, we, we have no shooters now. Like there are still guys who are going to shoot and they have, they, they did a little bit to add some, some shooting on the roster. Like obviously, you know, getting, getting Grady Dick in the, in there. But um, I, that just feels like such a weird roster to put James Harden on. And honestly, it's weird enough that I'd really like to see it happen. Um, but yeah. uh, I, I like just from the like visualizing a standpoint, not from the actual like front office standpoint. Like I would not be super in on it. Um, on doing it as the Raptors, but yeah, I think there's just no way they would move Ananobi for Harden, frankly. And the only way that Philly could do it is if they get Ananobi. I think. Mm-hmm. There, like, there's just no, there's no way they're moving OG for him. I think if you could do it without moving OG, that makes some sense. But 
I don't really see it. And then Utah, I don't see them going out and getting James Harden while they're in the middle of trying to rebuild. They are a team that theoretically could use a guard, but A, I don't think they're moving Markin in, and that's really the only guy that like helps Philly in any way, shape, or form. So realistically, the closest thing we've got is this DeMar deal. And I don't see it, which means I don't see a deal for James Harden on the market. Like we tried, we tried to get creative here to find some stuff for Harden that makes sense. Like I, you can come up with like maybe a Golden State construction where they turn the Chris Paul deal into something that makes sense. But yeah, I, I just don't, I don't see it. I do not see it. Do you? No, not really. I just that I'm I'm with you. I don't really see it either. Yeah, I, I do not. I've tried. I've tried very hard. I don't see it. Um, I think they should go into the season with James Harden on the roster and see what happens and see if anything opens up later. Maybe maybe a DeMar construction opens up later in the year when Philly or when Chicago's like out of the construction and like out of the um, contention is the word I'm looking for. Maybe you can do that. But I, I don't see it. I, I don't see a deal that makes Joel Embiid happy. And unfortunately, where I think this is going is th- this is setting up for Joel to like potentially ask for something else. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. It feels very much like it's headed that way, which is what makes it interesting to look at the teams that could be um, eyeing is the wrong way to put it, but the, the teams that could be um, in position to, to make the move for Embiid is really interesting to think about. And I, I don't want to make it just seem like we're trying to get him out of Philly, but legitimately that does feel like where it's headed. I think that there is a chance that that happens for sure. Um, TMNT asks, could the new owner make a move? Uh, so essentially new owner syndrome in Charlotte make a deal for Harden? Uh, maybe, but I don't think so. Uh, I'd be pretty surprised by that. Um, Again, though, like what does Charlotte have to offer? Like who is the guy that they could go give? Like they're not giving up LaMelo and that's the only guy you can really want. Uh, There's no way. I I don't think anybody's trading for Miles Bridges right now. So, you know, from a talent perspective, I guess you could say that, but I don't, I don't see it personally. Yeah. Okay. That was exhaustive. And I think it was worth being exhaustive because I just don't see the deal out there personally for James Harden, which means I think that it is more likely. Shout out to Spins. That's great. Adam Spinella in the comments. Are they waiting for the market to soften or will it just harden? God damn it, Adam. This is what I deal with. These are the messages that I get through, like throughout my life from Adam, uh, almost every day. Like mm-hmm. this, it's not just the podcast. This is this is what I get. Uh, okay, I don't see. It. I think they should go into the year with Harden and see what happens, unless like some weird construction where they can get like Chris Paul and Norman Powell presents itself, or they can get Demar Derozan. And I don't see either of those deals happening. So I think go into the year with Harden is my yeah. take. No, I agree. Um, okay. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We're going to talk for 10 minutes about some of these new commitments that have occurred across college basketball. And then we're going to get to PJ Washington and we will be right back. 
Okay, Mark, we're back. And we're going to talk about some college commitments now. And from what I know, you have not seen any of these three players play a second of that. That is correct. Right? Okay, so this will be fun. I will turn the show over to you. The three players are Ade Mara, Zvonimir Avisic, Johnny Furphy. Ask me questions for a minute here, and I will explain what's going on with these three. Okay, so I know Ade Mara is the guy who's probably gotten the most headlines here going to yeah. UCLA. How tall is he? He is seven foot three. Wow. He's a center. And he has super long arms, does not have like a super well-developed frame, but it's getting there. Um, fascinating, fascinating player across the board. Uh, I have real interest in what he develops into. Okay, what's his offensive game like? Like what's how would you how would you describe him as an offensive player? Okay, so Ademara is like a post scorer. Uh, first and foremost on offense. Like he is a guy that can really catch the ball on the block and make decisions more than anything. He has great touch around the rim. Like he'll shoot 55, 60% at the rim next year and he'll post a lot. And like, they will get him the ball a lot because UCLA, I think will use him as like a real creator. The thing is what I love about him most is his passing ability. Ademara can pass the shit out of the basketball. We're talking like he will throw behind the back looks on the block. He'll throw like no look passes to cutters. He'll throw awesome like wraparound kickout passes. He grabs the ball like on the defensive glass and he'll look for home run passes. Like Ademara can pass the shit out of the ball. Here's the thing. Mick Cronin has never had a center. I think that has had a 13% assist rate or better. Mick Cronin is also somebody that I think doesn't get enough credit for adjusting to his personnel when he has it. And I think that he will find a way to make it work with a day Mara, but it's going to be an interesting push pull. I think early on to figure out what that looks like. I have a day Mara at like 15 right now on the big board. That's coming out on Monday. Mm -hmm. I have filed it. I promise people it's coming out on Monday. Now we have all of that set up, right? Um, I have him at number 15 on the board. I think he's a fascinating player offensively. Uh, Gregory Castillo says, sounds like a Gonzaga big. I think that is dead on. Uh, I think that it's kind of similar. Like the guy that he compares to reasonably, I think is Damana Sabonis in terms of the passing creativity and the post scoring. He just needs to get stronger and a little bit more physical to actually reach that potential. I think. Okay. That's interesting. Uh, another question I asked off that too, how do you think he and Adam Bone are going to play together, especially with Bone going back? I have no idea. <laughs> that's so weird. Cause like, that's what was so interesting last year. Cause like, obviously just from what you're telling me, Bone is not that level of passer, but he does have a little bit. That's kind of interesting as like a handoff hub and, and, and potentially a short roll guy. And they never leaned into it last year. Oh so yeah. Like, no, They'll use Mara in that regard, and Bona will be, like, in the dunker spot, and they'll use, like, high-low actions with him and Bona. The other interesting one is that they are expected to get Burke Buyaktenshel, who is the Turkish kid that's, like, six foot nine, who is uh, 19 years old. Okay. And very similar skill set uh, to, like, what they just had last year with Jaime Jaquez. Uh, can really pass. He's a better passer than Jaime is, doesn't have as much shake off the bounce as what Jaime does. But like, 
unselfish, tough, physical, like can play in the mid post. They'll use him that way. Trying to figure out a way to get all of Mara, Bona, Bouillac, and Shell on the court at once is going to be a challenge, I think. And on top of it, I think that Mara probably only plays like 20 to 25 minutes a game just because he's 7-3 and, you know, it'll take a minute. Growing, yeah. It's just going to take some time, basically, to figure it all out, I think. Uh, and they'll they'll play like Bona, Bouillac, and Shell lineups at the 5-4 when Mara's on the bench. Like, they're just going to have to find a way to stagger Bona and Mara. But closing lineups, I think, are going to be really interesting for UCLA. I'm not totally sure what to expect there. Okay, that will be interesting. Um, okay, next guy. We're I'm trying to remember other names. Uh, Zvonimir. Tell me about him. Zvonim- I know nothing about him. Zvonimir Avisic. So he is the guy that I think has gotten the most highlights, essentially. Uh, he is the guy that has gotten the most uh, social media push because he's seven foot two and he has some dribble and shoot ability. Uh, doesn't have pass ability. We'll talk about that in a second. But seven foot two can actually like kind of run off of some screening actions and knock okay. down shots like in a really interesting way. Blocked, I think, 3.4 shots in 19 minutes per game in the European U-20 championships last year, which is like obviously just an absurd number. He is for a Kentucky team that currently has a lot of injury questions, let's call them. Uh, Aaron Bradshaw has a foot injury. I believe uh, Ugana Onyenso also has a foot injury. Guys that really struggle to come up with uh, guys that really struggle guys that are seven foot tall sometimes can struggle to come back from foot injuries. Let's call them Mm. Uh, because it's always a concern if there are seven foot seven footers with foot injuries. So I I just don't know what to think there. And I don't know how exactly a will play in that Kentucky scheme. It's worth noting that the Kentucky scheme in Canada at the global jam was much better. It, you know, was a pretty free flowing offense. They shot threes on 39% of their attempts. It made a lot more sense. And a Visich makes a lot of sense in that construct. I don't think he will beat out Aaron Bradshaw. I don't think he will beat out Ugana Onyenso. And I don't think he will beat out like, um, you know, really even Trey Mitchell, honestly, is a 23 year old that's on that roster. He's a real project. His pick and roll defense is a mess. Uh, he is like super flat footed all the time. He goes for blocks all the time in a way that is like completely unnecessary. Uh, he is a foul machine. He averaged like nine fouls per 40 minutes in the Adriatic League last year. Uh, he, he has so much work to do, but there's so much upside to where I think that if he can actually learn the fundamentals and mechanics of Kentucky. There is first round upside long-term. It's just not going to happen this year. And I know that people are like really excited about him in that way, but he's like a lot more like bull bull than he is like Victor Wembanyama kind of guy right now in terms of like the fundamentals. Yeah. Um, it's funny because you had told me a little bit about him before, um, before we, we talked today. And I think even more hearing, hearing about him from you, and from talking to some other people as well, like I don't understand why he's going to Kentucky um, from a basketball sense. 
uh, respectfully. Like, I think like just that has never been the kind of guy who necessarily thrives at UK. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because that is, uh, if you just go down the list of all the bigs that have played at UK in the last decade, like the closest player to that is like Terrence Jones. And yeah, that's completely different. Like that's. Yeah. I mean, look, like I wrote about this with Kyle Tucker today. They've never taken a guy like this. Like yeah. truly. Um, yeah. Dirty Dancer brings up the highlights had some Poku vibes. Um, nah, that's kind of true. Honestly, like they do have Poku vibes. And honestly, like Poku entering the NBA is a fresh is like a rookie. I don't think he would have been an effective college basketball player. <laughs> like it, it took him a while to get to where he is now, where he can like be on the court for NBA minutes. It's just, it's going to be really interesting. I think to watch how Kentucky utilizes him and if they need to utilize him, like they might be able to like have him just as a 10 minute per game rim protector who comes in and just like fuck shit up for 10 minutes a game and five minutes a half and just tries to block everything and fouls out in that time. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the, it's a good get for Kentucky because they needed depth. Like they truly needed to go and find somebody who is big because Bradshaw and Onyenso, I believe, are the only two guys on the roster over six foot nine. And for those guys both to be hurt, you need you need to go get depth in any way you can. And Avisic is a really good depth piece to go get. I just think he's more of a project than what has been portrayed in the media at this point. Maybe is a fair way to put it. Yeah, no, I think that that's fair. And uh, part of what's interesting too that I like what you I like what you said because even for me, I like I have to check myself sometimes when talking about college because, like like you mentioned with depth, I think it's so easy to get caught up in your head thinking in, in terms of NBA and the depth that 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 what that means because I think depth in the NBA is a lot more about maybe consistency is the wrong way to put it, but I think like consistency and role and what a person brings. And I think so much about college to me is like having options and matchups and. Like you mentioned, like being above seven feet in college, it doesn't make you an automatic ability to play guy, but like against a lot of schools, like, okay, you can just have impact by being huge because there are not, there are some teams who can't match up with that. You can, if you also have good fundamentals defensively and can play in ball screens. And I'm worried about him being able to do that right now, fundamentally. Mm-hmm. But he has the tools to do it to where cool. I think if he is there for two years, he will be really good at it. It's just that he probably needs to be there for two years. If he's only there for this year, I don't think Kentucky's going to get much out of it. But if he's there for multiple years, I think they actually probably will get quite a bit out of it. Okay. It's just that we need to like – I think it's a great get from a depth perspective. It's a great recovery from Kentucky given these injury concerns. It's just that the timeline is maybe a little bit slower right now than what maybe has been portrayed. Yeah, just being realistic about where he's at as a player. That makes sense. Totally. Okay. One sec. I need to – somebody's knocking on my door. Be right back. And Mark has someone knocking at the door. So I'll just talk Johnny Furphy now. So Johnny Furphy is this six-foot-seven-ish guard essentially going to Kansas. And Johnny Furphy is a really, really interesting player. He really blew up and broke out at the NBA Academy Games in Atlanta, where Mark is right now, actually. And what made him so impressive is the dribble pass shoot ability. Furphy can really, really impact the game with his skill level 
at a high level. That's the thing that is most impressive about his capability right now. You watch his highlights and you will see him throw down some really impressive dunks, especially in the open court. He's super aggressive. He's super energetic. He's trying to get downhill. He will throw down some real highlights at a super high level. I think that his athleticism has probably been a little bit overstated at this point. He's more of like an aggressive downhill athlete than he is like wildly explosive at this point. Um, He will dunk and he will try and dunk. And he is so, um, he has some real power to be able to do so. Like he plays through contact well. It's just that I think it's not going to happen as often as what people think in the college level, basically. Where I love him is, is I think he can really shoot the ball. I think his touch is awesome. I think that his ability to pass the ball is really high level. Like Australia played him at point guard often and was really capable of, uh, he's really capable of running the show, especially in transition. The Kansas fit to me is what's interesting. I would love to know if he's like planning on using this year almost as like a red shirt year. Uh, because originally Furphy was a 2024 prospect, not a 2023. And he decided to reclassify into 2023 going to Kansas is interesting because Kansas right now has Dewan Harris, who is going to start a point guard for them. Like undeniably they have Arterio Morris, who is a really interesting uh, player who transferred from Texas, who has an immense amount of talent. And then they also have a guy in um, El Marco Jackson, who I actually have as a potential one and done player, super athlete, great combo guard that really learned how to play off of two feet a little bit more and learned how to use his athleticism at a really, really high level uh, over the course of his time uh, over in the NEPSAC in the New England area. So I love what I've seen there from him. And I love what I've seen from Dewan Harris, I don't think that Furphy is going to get a ton of opportunity in order to play on the ball. On top of it, they also have Nick Timberlake, who is this awesome shooter coming in from Towson, who is going to be able to really space the floor and knock down shots at a high level. It's an interesting fit. I don't think Furphy is going to get on the court a lot this year. They also have Kevin McCuller coming back, obviously. Uh, KJ Adams, I think they're probably going to play a decent amount at the four this year as opposed to the five where he played last year because they have Hunter Dickinson coming in. It's a fascinating fit to go and get Johnny Furphy if you're Kansas. I think his skill set matches exactly what Kansas should be looking for long term. Uh, and I think his skill set is perfect for a Bill Self-led offense. I just don't think that there will be much Johnny Furphy that we see this year. I think that it's probably more likely to be uh, we'll see him impact the game in 2024-25. Okay. Catching the tail end of that, I'm uh, I'm excited to see him. Uh, I have, like you like you mentioned, I think I have confidence in Kansas kind of developing a guy out like that potentially. Um, yeah. But, yeah, that will be interesting. Sorry about that. Yeah, I had, uh, yeah just apartment building issue, but. Yeah, of course. And it's all good. I was able to talk through it. Uh, but Johnny Furphy's a stud, uh, a very real. Well, I talked to a couple of people that were at the NBA Academy games as NBA scouts. And what they compared Furphy to in terms of like his talent level was essentially like a top 50 recruit in the country. Uh, something in that ballpark is what you should expect, like getting the commitment from Johnny Furphy, like high end four star kind of guy. 
you know, has some real long-term NBA potential. Uh, very real chance that this is a guy that can play in the NBA. I actually like him quite a bit better than Alex Tui, the kid that was committed to Gonzaga and ended up doing the Next Star program uh, going to the Sydney Kings. I think Furphy is a little bit more talented. I think that he has a little bit more shake. Uh, the dribble pass shoot ability is very real for him. I think he's a little bit better of an athlete at six foot seven. He's just kind of a guy that I would rather bet on uh, than Alex Tui. And I think that Tui is a guy that was considered, you know, a potential top 50 ish kind of prospect when he was committed to Gonzaga. So I hope that maybe kind of helps for Kansas fans, maybe contextualize what Johnny Furphy is basically. Okay, cool. Okay. Back to the NBA now. Mark, you wanted to talk about P.J. Washington here. P.J. Washington is still a restricted free agent. P.J. Washington is the best free agent on the market still left. I understand why the market has fallen out a little bit. But he's still really good, and I think there is still a world where they can take where PJ can take the qualifying offer and essentially set up the Hornets to be in a very bad spot. I'll explain why that is in a second, but I will just note here. So PJ Washington started the season, not super great from an efficiency perspective, but if you look over the course of his last 40 games this year, played 34 minutes a night, shot 47% from the field, 36% from three, only 67% from the line, but averaged 17 points, five rebounds, two and a half assists, a steal, a block, and only one and a half turnovers. He was really good the second half of the year in a way that I think went a little bit under the radar. Mark, I'll kind of give you the floor. Can you kind of explain some of the context around P.J. Washington and why when you look at the efficiency numbers, they don't look super impressive, but it's worth explaining what the different uh, context of his situation was this year, I think. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, worth noting just how much LaMelo missed last year. So they had to kind of, I mean, easy to forget that Dennis Smith Jr. went from like borderline out of the league to starting a point guard for them for stretches of the season last year. And was good. Like he was a solid player. But point being, like they really had to divvy up the ball handling. And I think in some ways, to me at least, it felt very intentional that they did this with P.J. because they wanted to explore more with him. And I loved it because we we're, we're like P.J. was – in a weird spot the first three years of his career like he was effective and I thought he was really solid but like it was like veering into okay you're pretty much just a small ball five who's playing spot minutes at the four for us like we really view you as this guy who can unlock some things in small lineups for us we're going to play a ton in transition and and uh and get interesting with that and considering PJ's like six 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 seven it's like it just kind of narrows some of the pathways that you can have as a player in my opinion and that that made me think much more of like training towards being a bench player eventually on a, on a better team. And I think this, this past year, part of what was really exciting, like obviously the, the shooting has been there off rip. Like I, what was it? His first game in the NBA shot and made seven threes. His first or second. I remember like he had like the crazy start to his rookie year. Cause he kind of popped off like out of nowhere. Um, relatively, I should say. Um, but point being like, he went from being a guy who was spending over half of his minutes at center, um, had the lowest usage of his career, uh, granted three years, but was playing over half his minutes at center had like 16, 17% usage in the 2021, 22 season to playing almost all of his minutes at the four this past year, playing some minutes at the three, 
obviously still played a little bit at the five, but like went from being like a guy who was pretty strictly pop screen roll, um, make some plays on the short roll. And that was really about it to, Hey, we're putting the ball in your hands. We're going to let you take shots off the dribble. Um, you're going to run some ball screens for, for us. Um, and just like really toying with how versatile he can get as a player. And like you mentioned, like I wrote about this early on last year, because I think that was watching Charlotte was really interesting to me just to see that. Cause like, I've never seen PJ do this in the NBA. Um, and the efficiency numbers weren't great, but like you could see the vision, like he's always had the like really solid feel and good passing ability for a forward. Um, but like never was somebody who was necessarily handling the ball a ton to, to necessarily flash that. And I think this past year, like, he took like more pull-up threes in the first 20 games of the year than he had in his NBA career. Um, and I honestly ended up shooting pretty well on pull-up threes, like around the average on pull-up threes. And when you're, again, when you're considering that he's a legitimate front court player, like that's, that's intriguing. Not that I think it means tons going forward, but I think when you talk about what this can be next year and what he continues to do, that's exciting. Um, but then on the other side, I thought defensively he continued to get better this year. Like, he was a guy who, like, they've always been pretty, like, worked to be really switchable with him, um, especially when they were playing him at the five. Uh, has some ability as a drop defender in short stuff, like playing close to the level of the screen because he has solid hands. Um, not really a rim protector guy because he doesn't have awesome uh, back foot leaping ability, in my opinion. But point being, like, he's really good at, at using his functional strength as a low center of gravity, can stay in front. Um and point being, like, he went from a guy the first three years of his career to me that was – did some things and could potentially do more. So, like, had flashes of being, like, a really important versatile player to this past year. I think he really became, like, an actual versatile player. Like, a player who yeah. you can count on to do things on the court in, in multiple ways. And that's the big thing to me because I think – I've told you about this, but my biggest growth in evaluation the last year – is having an appreciation for how uh, how difficult it is to actually be versatile because like there are a lot of guys who like okay if and this is not meant, again not meant to slander players but like you look at players who are the guys who have always interested me like Darius Baisley Isaiah Roby like guys who are like three through five that Rudy gets yeah well yeah but like because even Rudy's like an interesting case study to look at like totally but like when you're looking at all these guys who can do things that are guard-esque um, or like can do like small forward things, but maybe don't have the full ability to play that. Like when you see a guy who is able to really put things together into being a quote unquote four, because really a modern four to me is a player who can play three through five to an extent mm-hmm. um, and be a positive or, or at least a neutral. And to me, that's where I'm at with PJ because of where he got to defensively Um and the added consistency is as a guy who can attack closeouts and who can create a little bit because like that was to me, that was the biggest hangup. He was always like very much a guy who could do some good things as like a secondary, but in terms of like, okay, well, if he has, if he catches a six, four guy on the block, can he take the ball up? Cause that was not something mm. he really did before. And they started letting him do that this last year. And so, when you see the efficiency he had over the back end of the year, well, obviously, like, his usage changed a little bit as Lamo came back around. But for the most part, like, they were still letting him do a lot of the same stuff. And uh, to me, like, that is a player that every single team in the NBA not only should want, but would be in the top 
eight, seven of the rotation, I think you would start for a lot of really good teams. I think you would too. And this is where I think that I can kind of talk about the financial piece of it, right? Because I think that it's really interesting. So Dirty Dancer brings up in the comments, there are so many teams at the full mid-level, I don't see why no one has offered him. I would be pretty surprised if nobody else has offered him the full mid-level. If I was PJ, I would want, I think, more than that. There's, and I would be hoping I'll go as far as saying he should not take the mid-level. Like, he is... I don't think he should either, and he, here's the reason why. So, PJ Washington's qualifying offer right now is right around eight to eight and a half million. If I remember correctly, I'm going to look at it while we're talking. Um, his, his offer is yeah. 8.4 to 8.5 million right now. He can sign that at any point. That's what the Hornets have to put down on the piece of paper or on the, um, you know, it, it, by the CBA in order to retain his restricted free agency rights. He can accept that offer at any point. The mid-level exception currently is right around, I believe, $12.5 million for the first year. I'm looking it up right now. 12.4, I believe, is the full mid-level for the first year of such a deal. Essentially, he can take the qualifying offer and hit unrestricted free agency next year for a $4 million cut this year. And all he has to do next year and all his representation has to do next year is make up that $4 million whenever he's an unrestricted free agent in a market that should have a decent amount of money, but does not have a lot of super valuable players available. I think there is like no way the, the break even point for PJ Washington at that stage after taking the qualifying offer would be like 460 or something like that. Like if he would get a 460 deal, it would be better than him taking a four, um, uh, like a 452 or 454 deal right now. Because his upside is way greater than that. His upside is probably like a 490 deal next offseason if he goes really well this year and plays super well and the Hornets are better and everything. Or if he gets traded midseason, it, well, he'd have to like, if he takes the qualifying offer, he would then have uh, essentially a no trade clause where he'd be able to pick and choose his spot that makes the most sense for him. So it'd be super valuable there. So again, from a strategic perspective, it does not really make sense for PJ Washington to take the full mid-level right now you could maybe make a case that he could take like a three-year mid-level with a team option something like what paul reed did if he just wanted to like lock in money right now and lock in money for two years and then he'd be a restricted free agent after those two years maybe it's possible i I think that like there's a real case for that and somebody should do that i think that that would be the most interesting avenue potentially charlotte 100 percent matches that though and I don't, I don't know if PJ wants to go back to Washington. This is just me speculating. I'm not saying this based on any information. But if PJ maybe doesn't want to go back to Charlotte and doesn't want to be there for the long haul unless he's getting paid a substantial amount of money, then maybe it makes more sense for him to wait and not take that two-year deal where he would essentially have to be in Charlotte for two years. 
So because the qualifying offer is so high, because he met the starter criteria for a qualifying offer and he was a lottery pick, he actually has more options at his disposal than what I think people maybe recognize Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of his restricted free agency. There's a real easy break-even point for him next year in unrestricted free agency, which makes this a thing where P.J. Washington, despite the fact that like a lot of teams don't have a lot of cap space, he actually does still have a fairly real amount of leverage, in my opinion, against the Charlotte Hornets to be able to try and negotiate a situation that makes sense for him. So that I would imagine is why this is playing out so long. If I was Charlotte, I would just offer him like 475 or so, like something in that ballpark. That seems like a fairly reasonable, equitable deal. Maybe I would try and get like a team option on the end of it uh, if I was them. But that that's kind of where I'm sitting on all of this. Does that does that make sense, Mark? Yeah. No, I I'm I'm in the same boat. I'd go as high as four for eighty for him. Like I really think that I believe in that. And it's easy to forget. This is just his fourth year. Like he's not 25 yet, which is um, yeah. like he will be by the time the season starts. But again, I, I like him a lot. So I think we're in the same boat on that. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up all of the defensive things with PJ as well, because I've always thought that like he was a versatile defender in theory more than in practice. Yep. Uh, if you look at his numbers, they had a 117 defensive rating with him off the court this year, a 113 defensive rating with him on the court this year. If you actually look at his numbers with Dennis Smith, who was, in my opinion, probably one of the five best defensive guards in the NBA this year For sure. and was like straight up unbelievable in a way that not nearly enough people have recognized defensively. And I will keep preaching that on this show as I believe I've talked about it a couple of times at this point. If you look at their defensive numbers, when Washington and Dennis were on the court together, they had a 109.3 defensive rating uh, in the 788 minutes that PJ and Dennis played together last year. They were switchable. They were tough at the point of attack. Like they were really, really good in those settings. And I think PJ has gotten to the point where he's actually pretty good defensively now. And he is also someone that is working through the shot. He can shoot off of different actions now. And he can actually take a little bit of advantage uh, in the post when guys switch on to him and make things a little bit, uh, try and create different, you know, advantageous situations for them. Uh, against LaMelo by maybe putting a bigger guy on LaMelo and forcing LaMelo into pull-ups. So that's that's where I'm at on PJ. I think PJ is really good, and I think that like teams should really strongly take a look at signing him. Uh, unfortunately, no, nobody really has a ton of money. Um, if he'd be willing to take like a two-year de- or a three-year mid-level exception deal where the third year is a team option, kind of like how Paul Reed did uh, with Utah, uh, I think that that would be really, really sharp and a really smart utilization of resources for some mm-hmm. for a team like that no i agree okay uh last little bit here mark you wanted to talk about some young guys league-wide i will give you the floor first who do you want to talk about there's really only one guy i want to talk about so you have a couple of guys i'm sure i do just want to riff on a few yeah number one ej liddell um i don't i, I think um, being reasonable in expectations is important with EJ just because he's coming into a roster that is pretty full. Um, there's definitely a lot to um, like, I, I think some things will need to happen for him to get cemented opportunities, but he's a guy that I, I know you and I both were really high on. Um, at, at least I should say, especially compared to where he ended up getting drafted 
Um, and I like the idea of him going to, to New Orleans, obviously before the injury happened. Um, I think there's a real chance with how their team is built, if another injury happens or, or if he gets opportunity and run, that he could really be just an interesting piece for them doing a lot of the things that we just talked about with PJ. Like, I don't think that he's at the same, obviously not at the same level yet coming in as what will be as a rookie, but bringing somebody who can be like, he is like a legitimately solid to, to plus rim protector, even while being a little bit undersized, he can switch a little bit. He can do kind of, uh, he brings theoretical versatility in the front court spot. And if things hit in the right way, maybe he brings real versatility, especially depends on what the shot looks like. Um, he's just a player that I, I would bet on potentially finding a role with this team as the year goes on, much like we saw with, like, I think, like, again, like seeing what happened with Najee Marshall, what happened with Herb Jones. Like, I think that EJ is kind of in that same mold of being somebody who just brings a lot of positive things to the basketball court on both ends. Um, and I honestly, I was higher on, on EJ as a player than, uh, than either of them coming out. I don't think that he's going to be the same level as Herb for sure. But, um, point being like, I, I like EJ a lot and he's somebody that it's it's, coming off injury, missing all of last year. It's easy to kind of forget that he's on the team. Um, but I think that I wouldn't be shocked if he has like a, a a non-significant impact this year. I mean, non-insignificant impact. I should have just said significant, semi-significant impact this year. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit lower on him this year. I, I agree with you generally that I think that he can be an impact player long term. I, I just don't really see the role for him unless Zion is missing like significant time, which you always have to consider, right? But charitably, he's probably the 12th man right now yeah. for New Orleans, right? And that, that's not a statement on EJ. It's a statement on how deep they are as an organization at this point. Mm-hmm. where, you know, Dyson Daniels might be their ninth man and Dyson is really good. Having said that, like, I do wonder if EJ, they, they need Jordan Hawkins' skill, like the thing that he brings to the table as a shooter. They need that more than what EJ brings to the table. I do think that EJ might be a little bit more ready to play in the NBA this year than what Jordan Hawkins is. And that's because Jordan's quite skinny and will still work through some things. So, I don't know. Like it's EJ is an interesting one. Cause I do really like the player. I agree with you. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know what the role is for him in yeah. new Orleans yet. I guess. For sure. But yeah, especially like you mentioned long-term, I think that he's again, somebody to be really interested in with where he's yeah. going moving forward. Um, yeah. And, and look, they signed him to a three-year deal. Like they, you know, are, are going to give him some real leeway here, I think to figure some things out. And I, I would imagine they see him as valuable. Like he got two years guaranteed, right? I, I would imagine they signed him via the second round exception. So those deals are kind of like preordained in terms mm-hmm. of what their value are. And also I would imagine that up until his injury last year, there was some sort of agreement that they were going to do like a deal. And this is just like a make good on the contract for EJ, uh, you know, going back to, um, you know, whatchamacallit, going back to when he was picked and with mm-hmm. the agency. So I think this was always going to happen. I don't know that necessarily the the contract that they gave him says anything about who he is as a player, but I think that it says that they do value him in some way and are intrigued to see where it goes. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, okay, the guy I want to talk yeah. about, I want to talk about Dom Barlow. And Dom Barlow's 
bizarre restricted free agency. Dominic Barlow signed a, I believe, two-way contract. He just signed his two-way restricted free agency tender with the San Antonio Spurs. And it is baffling to me that after the way he played at Summer League and the way he played this past year for the Spurs and for their program uh, in Austin, I guess it was, it's baffling to me that nobody tried to offer him a guaranteed contract and tried to give him not just like guaranteed money, but like real guaranteed money, right? Like let's, let's just throw out an example, right? The Houston Rockets, because of the way that they constructed all of their deals this off season, they maintained like that $7.7 million room exception. If I was the Houston Rockets, I would have offered Don Barlow like a three year you know, $12 million contract four four million guaranteed basically per year, maybe do the first two years guaranteed, create some weird funky thing like the jazz did with Paul Reed in terms of making it inaccessible for the Spurs to be able to match and just giving him real money. If you're Houston, all you're doing is you're pissing off a local rival, which is fantastic. You're probably happy about doing that. And you're a team that is younger and is probably trying to take as many flyers on guys like Don Barlow as you can. On top of that, after the first two years, if you do it only two years guaranteed, you could decline the third year team option and then maintain him as a restricted free agent. uh, If he really breaks out and you continue to have his rights it's complete. And that's just like one example. There are a number of teams out there that have mid-level exception money available. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is baffling to me that nobody went out and tried to give Dominic Barlow real money. Everything we've seen of him since he's been out of overtime elite. And frankly, since he was in overtime elite and since he's been in an NBA scheme says to me that this guy is an NBA player and somebody should have given him a real shot at it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, he was incredibly impressive at Summer League. And especially, like, as the year went on, like, he, it was funny because he was one of the guys who looked a little bit like a fish out of water with the Spurs to start the year because they did the thing where let's give guys some run early and then send them to uh, um, – to is it Austin? Is it's it? Austin. Okay. Yep. I always forget because that just changed recently. But, yeah, send them down to Austin and then bring them back up later on in the year. And I thought he, he and Malachi Brandon both really benefited from that. Um, so I agree. I don't really understand why that is, has taken so long or why that hasn't happened. Um, I also don't mean to shift this, but we just got a really big news hit from Pete Thamel um, that Arizona is in deep discussion to join the Big 12. Um, yeah. So g- give me one second on that. Yeah. I, w- I want to finish on Don Barlow and we'll For close sure. the loop there. Um, the other thing about the Spurs, if you give Don Barlow a offer sheet, I think they probably do just match it. I want to be clear about that. Like I I think San Antonio would have matched it, but it wouldn't have been the easiest thing in the world because if you look at their salary sheet right now, they currently have, I think something like 18 guaranteed contracts on their roster, like non two way guaranteed contracts. If you give Barlow a guaranteed deal, you're essentially making the Spurs cut or try and move four guys before the season starts, similarly to the deal that Oklahoma City is going through right now. Mm -hmm. So I think it actually would have been a little bit more onerous on them than what people recognize. 
And like they would have had to cut basically Kem Birch campaign, you know, probably Chetty Osman, but then one of like Charles Bassey, Julian Champagny, uh, you know, Reggie Bullock or Keldon Johnson or not Keldon Johnson or uh, Doug McDermott. Right. Like you probably actually have to like really maneuver and cut somebody that you don't want, or you can just not match Barlow. And I think they would have matched it, but like, if you're another team, you're just doing like Don Barlow's agent, who I believe is Todd Ramazar a favor. And it's just like, why would you not, why would you not do that at the end of the day? Like you, you win, you win favor with the agent, you get a player that's probably worth the contract you're about to give them. And you know, you piss off the Spurs in the process. Like it's pretty good. Yeah, no, I think I'm with you. Like I, I, I don't, I don't make qualms with that. Okay. Um, you do one more player, and then we'll talk about the Arizona thing. Yeah, so it helps because I did only have one other player I wanted to bring up for sure, and that's Kobe White, man. Like, I think he kind of got lost in the shuffle last year because obviously uh, Chicago was a little bit – but more than a little bit underwhelming. Um, had a little bit of an odd start to the year. wasn't perfect, but – like, I mean, nobody's perfect, but like um, – I was I was unimpressed with Kobe to start the year. I think is the way to put it. Like he's shown some signs of growth the last couple of seasons, um, but to start the year, I was really hoping for it and expecting a little bit more. But then he really figured some things out as the year went on. Like I think he really figured out, um, like not even figured out. Maybe it's a little bit too far, but like I think that his decision making really improved, especially as a pick and roll ball handler. Um, his finishing as a whole got a lot better. Um, his shot continued to get more consistent and he was able to do it, not just, uh, you know, off the catch or off the dribble. Like he got a little bit more versatility in it. I think his defense, which started to improve last year, I think took another step this year, not saying that he's an all defense level guy, but continues to just become a really capable defender and willing and active. And I think the off ball defense got better this year too, which was the biggest issue the year before. Um, So just to to pull the numbers from uh, the last 40 games of the year, he missed a few. Um, So this is 35 games. So from towards the end of January, uh, 46% from the field, 38% from three on five a game, 11 points, four assists, the one turnover. Like I just thought that he really started to, to find some things. And he, this was the most like I've ever felt like, Oh, Hey, Kobe white is like actually kind of putting it together. Not just, you know, because I think there's always been the if Kobe is not hitting his shots, then what does he necessarily bring to the game? I think that was always my my biggest hang up with him because the, the reads just weren't consistent. The accuracy wasn't really there as, as a as a as a playmaker either. And now mm-hmm. I just like feel pretty good about him being a, a rotation level guard. Like I don't maybe it, I don't, I'm probably not quite there with him being like a full time starter or some something, but like. I think that he's legitimately turned into a, a pretty solid player for the Bulls. And I want to see what that can be this next year um, and can, can keep growing into like, um, especially with like Caruso is obviously a very good defender, but I, I do think it went under again, under the radar, how much he's regressed a little bit offensively, in my opinion. Um, like, I don't think that, yeah, it's not like awful, but like I think just like there were legitimate times last year where I was like, I think Kobe should be playing more than Alex Caruso for this. Yeah, you're you're on drugs. 
You're on. Drugs. I don't think so. <laughs> Caruso's defense. Caruso was the best guard defender in the NBA last year. I get the, like the defense is really, really good from him, but I think this team was so lacking in offense last year that I yeah. thought that that Kobe needed to play more. Maybe saying over Caruso is the wrong way to put it, but like I do think that there were points last year where I think he was better than Caruso. As a, I get, as a, as I get your point. Player. And honestly, like I'm a little bit worried that they kind of over-indexed a little bit on like defense and defensive signings this year in the backcourt uh, in order to pair with like DeRozan and Levine. Like you go out, you get Javon Carter, you re-sign Io DeSumo, and then you still have Caruso on the roster. Like I find it I'm, – I'm going to be really interested to see how – like Kobe White got more than all of these guys. Like he's making more money than all of these guys and they retained him. But – where do the minutes come from if you're trying to like create a backcourt fit that like lines up and makes sense? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, no, I'm, I'm not because like, like you, you think that like they probably told Javon Carter's reps like, yeah, no, he's going to play 20 to 25 minutes a night. And then you have to play Alex Caruso 25 to 28 minutes a night. And then you have Levine who's going to play 30 to 35. And then you have DeRozan who's going to play 30 to 35. Um, and oh, by the way, Pat Williams, like, Someone told me like, "Hey, you need to go back and watch Pat Williams defensively this year." Yeah, he was really Pat good Williams this year was really good on defense this year. He made my on, shortlist. Like, for all, he didn't he didn't make all defense for me. He made my shortlist. He was really good this year. Yeah, like I thought he was fine on defense, but I like went back and like really watched, and I was like, "Oh no!" Like this guy's really, really, really good on defense. Like mm-hmm. it was him and Caruso that like held that whole thing up this year on defense, and they finished top five in defensive rating this year. So like. You finish top five in defensive rating when you have, you know, DeMar DeRozan and, you know, Nikola Vucevic, frankly. And then you also have Zach Levine, who, you know, is playing substantial minutes and playing like real amounts of game time to finish in the top five defensively. That's fucking impressive. (laughs) That's like pretty wild. And it can't just be Caruso. So I went back and I was like, holy shit, Pat Williams is the guy. But Pat Williams is going to play 28 to 30 minutes, hopefully this year. Mm-hmm. So, like, where do the minutes come from for Kobe is kind of my question. Um, or does he – like, does Io just, like, never play? And does, you know, Javon Carter play less than what I'm thinking? I think based off of last year, Kobe should be higher up in the packing order than Io. I agree with that totally. Yeah. I'm I'm 100% with that. But, yeah, no, it definitely makes it interesting. Like, I, I'll, be in, I'll be very curious to see what they do. Because especially, too, like, when we're talking – this team is so weird, man. Because then we're talking about like, okay, well, is Dalen Terry just not playing this year now? Like, what? Oh no, no, he won't play this year. Like, there's just no because they signed the other hilarious thing they did is they signed Tory Craig, like another high level defensive player who doesn't have real like offensive value. Yeah. So, I I get that they really value defense, and I like the fact that they're trying to value creating a defensive infrastructure around you know, their center position with Vucevic and around Rosen and Levine. It's just that I don't think the roster makes a lot of sense, basically. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, but I think the last thing I would say on Kobe, like, I just think he kind of winds it. Like, I don't think he's ever going to have like all-star level impact or anything. Um, but like, I'm not saying anything hot by saying that, but I kind of think that he ends up being this generation as George Hill. I know that that might sound oh, hot, wow. but I don't think that's crazy. I don't like, I don't think he's going to be the same level of defender as George Hill, but like in terms of just like a really steady combo guard who ends up being like a quality starter for 
uh, for quite a few teams. I think Kobe gets to that. Wow. I don't for what it's worth. Um, and I like Kobe just fine. I, I'm surprised to hear that from you of all people because you watched George Hill like a lot in Indiana. I, okay, but um, again, like I mean, like it is. I sh- I should phrase it. I do like comps differently in my head. I don't mean like the exact same level of player. My point is in terms of being a guy who I think can really just be like he's clearly not a true lead guard, but he yeah. can start offense for you. He's a good shooter off movement, off well, a solid shooter off movement, growing shooter off movement but capable and sure you have to guard guy who can attack the basket and is starting to make much more quality reads and be a, a, a solid defender. Like obviously again, George was a better defender than solid at his peak, but point like when I think of like quintessential combo guard who was able to be um, an impact in the league for a long time, I think of George Hill. So that's, that's just kind of where I go. But I think I do believe in Kobe enough to be that level of player eventually. What I would say about George Hill is that from 2013 to 2017, he was, according to dunksandthrees.com and their EPM model, uh, a nine-win player, nine-win player, seven-and-a-half-win player, eight-win player, like seven-and-a-half-win player for a five-year period. Uh, Kobe White, I don't know that he's been a positive player yet. I think model. He's got to be close to positive last year. Yeah, he, so he was worth 2.6 wins last year. But like their uh the effective plus minus model was negative 0.7, but negative 0.7 is above like replacement level basically. Yeah. Um so it is it's interesting. He, I'll he's, stand by it. Like I really I I believe in this one, Sam, like for real. I I like Kobe. I I just think that like he's probably going to be like a great sixth man as opposed to like George Hill being you know, super high level starter uh, throughout like a, honestly, like George Hill was a starter for almost a decade, which yeah. is like pretty crazy to think about. He was awesome, man. I loved him so much. He like George Hill was great. Never forget blonde era, George Hill with the shitty fucking, um, the, the Hickory jerseys. Remember yeah, the red reflective uniforms? God, those were, those are the worst jerseys of all time in the NBA. Yeah. I think those are worse than the Washington Brown uniforms. Yeah. yeah, I guess George Hill. George Hill was a starter for seven years, not a decade. Um, nonetheless, you want my very random. My favorite George Hill memory of all time is his forty-eight games, I believe, with with the Utah Jazz. Um, shout out to that team because that's before um, it's before they draft Donovan. That's the first year that they go to the playoffs, and then Gordon leaves. Um, but George just absolutely torched the Clippers in that series. <laughs> And it was yeah. so fun. So yeah, I just had to. I had to reminisce on that. I love that, uh, Mark. Do you want to talk at all about this realignment stuff? I, I just like. I can. I don't really know how to wrap my head around it. To be completely honest. Um, so so Pete Thamel is reporting that, as you said, Arizona's in deep discussions with the Big Twelve about joining the league. Some finality expected in the near future, as there's an Arizona Board of Regents meeting scheduled for later tonight. Um, he wrote on July 31st as well that uh, look for Arizona, Arizona State, and Utah to band together in this. And then also, um, what else can I what else can I say here? Let's see. Um, Florida State, uh, I think, had like a comment 
uh, earlier today or yesterday about like potentially looking to move the AC, uh, leave the ACC. Um, the Big Ten presidents, according to Nicole Auerbach, uh, have authorized Commissioner Tony Petiti to explore expansion. Uh, discussions have centered on just Oregon and Washington. So the Pac-12 is falling apart. Uh, yeah, Pac-12, Pac-12 has been a done. fucking it's been a fucking nightmare for years. Like anybody that's been around that league knows that like this league has been so woefully mismanaged uh, over the course of like from Larry Scott when he was the um, person in charge. And frankly, like it's more on him than anybody. Like I, I don't know enough about uh, Cliff Koff, who's there. Uh, um commissioner right now but the the way larry scott mismanaged this league is laughable over the course of his career there Uh, look i think it'd be cool if you know oregon and washington and usc and ucla are in the big 10 i think it'd be cool if arizona arizona state and utah are in the big 12 along with colorado let's do it let's lock it in it's the the best way i have to put this this is what i used to do at ncaa 14 all the time just make a couple (laughs) super conferences (laughs) Like I, uh, I would, yeah, I would just, I would normally mix the Big Twelve and uh, and Pac twelve and add Boise State in, and then go crazy with the Big Ten too, and that was kind of it. Um, yeah, I don't, dude. It's just so weird because in some so many ways, this mirrors what's happened with uh, cable, and it's hilarious because it's so directly tied to that. But that's a whole other conversation. But like. What happens in the next decade then when all these teams that have been in the conference are like, oh, well, like this kind of sucks. Like, yeah, we benefit monetarily from it. But like I I do wonder what it means in terms of actual um, growth as a as a school. Like maybe I'm overthinking it, but I do think in it to an extent, like part of what is like like I think about so much like like for me like because like Boise was like the one as a kid you know with with what that football program did for the school like because there are some schools who have absolutely blown up because of one sick run that happens on national television like all of the kids that I know who started wearing Florida Gulf Coast shit because my beloved Hoyas got torched on national television in the first round of the uh the NCAA tournament when we were supposed to win the national title that year but we don't have to talk about that but like point being like I, again like there's just so much within that that i think maybe it just winds up going to independence with like everybody's independent with protected rivalries or something like i don't know it's in yeah it's 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 wild like i have no idea what thing honestly it's just trending towards it. people started to realize it as professional sports i hope so that's yeah. what it's been for a while. Yeah. That, has, that is what it's been for a while. And we shall, we shall see someone, someone just posted that Jason Shear just posted a message, uh, posted an image of the zoom call, meaning Jason is like getting these messages, of like the zoom call of Arizona. That's incredible. Pack 12 is a nightmare. Oh my God. Mark, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at MG underscore Schindler. Um, honestly, at MG underscore Schindler everywhere. Try to streamline it. I haven't been on threads in like a week, and I don't know if I'll ever be back. But, um, yeah, I have plenty of stuff coming up on all places. I'll have something written on PJ Washington tomorrow or, or the next day because he's just 
that's who's that there it's the dead period in the nba so i've been thinking about that on top of all, all the w stuff but yeah i love it i love it mark uh hit the like button before you leave the youtube channel this has been sam vicini i've written a lot the last couple of days bizarrely uh, i have a big thing on zvonimir visich going to kentucky with kyle tucker i wrote about a day mara going to uh ucla earlier today i also am writing as soon as i'm off this phone uh about johnny furphy going to kansas we talked about all of this on the podcast today additionally from jeffrey chen did sam mention when the 24 draft big board is coming out yes i did i dropped that in the middle of the show people might have missed it it is coming monday i have actually filed it now like i know um that it's coming monday i, I have officially put it like in the books we're good it's coming Monday. You will see who I have at number one. You'll see it's flipped back and forth a bunch of times. And Adam and I will talk about it either on this Sunday or next Sunday. I'm not totally sure yet. It might be next Sunday because Adam and I uh, have a really fun topic already planned for this Sunday. Um, but keep it locked here and we'll be back later this week. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.